whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, the last best place or legends of the fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Welcome to Breakfast in Montana. We're going to talk about some Lewis and Clark books this episode, and we're excited to discuss Undaunted Courage, just celebrating its 25th anniversary, actually. Stephen Ambrose, who actually never lived in Montana, but um, spent a lot of time here traveling the Lewis and Clark Trail. And we're also going to talk to his daughter, Stephanie, who's lived in Helena for decades and wrote her own book, in relation to the uh, Lewis and Clark expedition called Why Sacagawea Deserves the Day Off and Other Lessons from the Lewis and Clark Trail. Maybe most of the claims we stake on Sacagawea's memory are because we want her to be our friend. We want her approval, her glad tidings, her ermine tales, her stale bread, her lump of sugar, her blue beaded belt, all of the gifts she gave. We want to hold them close. Imagine if that blue beaded belt were somehow found and put on the market today. It might fetch more than the iron boat on eBay. We want her friendship for the very reason John Luddig, who was the factor or the head guy at the fort, noted when she died at Fort Manuel in 1812. She was a good and the best woman of the fort. Her integrity was intrinsic. She needs no mythology or statue. From the very beginning of her appearance in the journals, she stood for something without perhaps even knowing it. Yet she was a real thing. A woman, a mother, a wife and a sister, a friend, a woman who knew where she belonged, a woman who was strong, worked hard and loved her children. None of these things necessarily makes her a hero, but in a sense, it makes her the best kind of hero one we can recognize and celebrate in ourselves. So let's pull up our claim stakes, pull out our flagpoles, and finally, after all these years, let her have a day off. Let her rest in peace. Let her lay down all the burdens collected from sea to shining sea. That's awesome. That's great. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I, you know, I had a strong identity with her just because of her age, you know, and when we were doing the trail as a family, you know, I was the oldest of five kids. My brothers were close enough in age that they were always challenging me and saying, you know, oh, girls, this and that and stuff like that. But they were also good companions. We had a great we had a couple of students with us that first summer and we just had a lot of fun. And so I identified with her and her kind of some of the mischievous things or some of her episodes where she really inserts her personality and you you kind of get, wow, she was, she had some spunk. There were a couple of rather large novels written by women that claimed that she had lived to be a hundred years old and her, her grave is out there in Wyoming somewhere. And so huh. there's different versions of, you know, what happened to the end of her story. And 
the story that all the scholars accept is the story that she did die at Fort Manuel Lisa and and she's her grave would have been covered by the reservoir there. And the reason that they pin that fact is because Clark mentions it in a list of the people of the expedition and kind of where they are now and right. that she had died. So mm. you know, he's a good source on that. Once I decided, oh, you know, this Lewis and Clark thing, this this commemoration is going to be a big deal, regardless of what my dad was saying, but just in terms of my own local area. And I knew all these people from being associated with Lewis and Clark. And so I felt very fortunate to be able to go on trips with Dayton Duncan. And, you know, I watched them interview my dad. It was in Leo Graybill's law or in his library in Great Falls. And to watch those two work and then my dad being the interviewee, it was quite an amazing lesson. And then we're driving home and my dad was thinking, but, you know, he's just you could tell something was bothering him. And he goes, oh, now I know what they wanted me to say. And they had kept asking him, well, now, how cold was it? How cold was it? And what they wanted him to refer to was when York almost froze his penis off. <laughs> he didn't say it, but we were halfway down the road back to Helen, and he's like, "Damn it, turn around!" I know what they wanted. That's, so that's funny. Fun story, yeah. <laughs> so I was curious about you. Never mentioned your dad in the in this book. Did in you the, realize that? Yeah, I guess I did. You know, part of my thing is that I I want to distance myself from what he his interpretation of what drove Lewis crazy because mine is completely different from what he said. Mm. And also I, uh, you know, my dad loved Lewis and in Lewis and Clark world, it seems like you're either love Lewis or you're a Clarkie. They call them Clarkies. I'm a Clarkie because oh, my, you are? having studied it. Yeah. I'm like, Oh yeah. Clark was the guy. Mm. Clark was with the men much more than Lewis because Lewis wanted to go off and walk along the shore and collect samples. And he just wasn't a people person. And to me, that's my opinion. So I wanted to when I wrote this book, I really wanted to not say, oh, you know, my dad would have agreed with this, which I doubt he would have. But I wanted to, you know, throw it out that my theory was that Lewis had uh, was on the spectrum. He had Asperger's. And I actually sent it to one of the, the world's experts on Asperger's. And he said, oh, yeah, this guy had some, some definite tendencies. But, you know, you can't diagnose somebody who's been dead for 175 years or whatever. So it's a theory. And I just wanted to put it out there after having spent all this time talking about Lewis and Clark with all the main people. Some of them agree with me. Some of them say, no, no, he was way too brilliant to have that affliction. I'm like, well, those people are brilliant. You know, that's mm. their thing. They are brilliant. <laughs> you know, some yeah. of them. What, while you're talking about that, what, what's your take on his death? Well, unlike everybody who has studied it, I believe he killed himself. Yes, I do. And I think, you know, that there's been various theories about, oh, the Natchez Trace, he was robbed, somebody robbed him, there's a conspiracy, like they, he knew where the gold was out West. I mean, all those things are far-fetched to me. I go back to Clark's reaction to it and Jefferson's too, who also said, yeah, the melancholy runs in the family. You know, and I was worried about them. They were both worried about them. And the fact that neither one of them said, OK, we're going to investigate this supposed robbery and find yeah. out who did this because they loved him. You know, I think they would have done that for their friend, mm. but they didn't. So well, that's you have to believe that his inability to get started on the this massive book that he was supposed to write 
must have weighed heavily on him too. Like he just couldn't even start. It sounded like. Yeah, and and you know, and he was he was treating himself with different yeah. substances and right. You know, a lot of the things people call it the Buzz Aldrin syndrome. You know, it's like, well, I've been all the way out to the Pacific Coast and back. I led these guys. Now what? Right. Now I'm supposed to write this damn book. You know, Jefferson should have said, look, I'm going to give you a staff of people. You can you don't have to do any other job. Just get this done so that we get this record. The third book we're discussing for this episode is a poetry collection by Corey Williamson called The River Where You Forgot My Name. And the reason it's relevant is because Corey grew up in the same town as William Clark's wife, Julia, and she writes many of the poems in this collection about the Lewis and Clark expedition, and many of them from the point of view of Julia Clark. So tell us about the inception of this book. You know, it connects Virginia to Montana in mm-hmm. a pretty cool way. The river where you forgot my name. <laughs> yeah. I should say first that, like, I grew up in Virginia and was always sort of taught and fed the Lewis and Clark mm. narrative, right? And, like, Charlottesville claims Lewis as, you know, his birthplace. And the little town in Virginia where I grew up was where Julia Hancock, who Clark uh, married, was born. There was a William Clark Middle School, like right close to my house. You know, so it's a story of like, these are our guys. These are our heroes. Jefferson designed your college. And Jefferson built UVA and Jefferson is everywhere. And I think UVA is kind of doing a little bit more to think critically about Jefferson. But when I was in school, I don't think that they were at all. Um, And I read Don't Encourage when I was in the sixth grade. Like somebody gave me this book as a sixth grader. Holy cow. And you know, I just sort of like ate it up as this exciting example of nonfiction and this like, oh, here's a here's a story about heroes who come from where I come from. And then I, you know, started coming to Montana probably in like 2009 and I moved here in 2013 and I picked the book up again because, you know, I moved to Lewis and Kirk County and like Montana is so saturated also in this narrative in a similar way to where I grew up in Virginia. And I read it really differently. When I got to Montana, I was following this guy who I'd met in graduate school. I moved out here with him for his career. And I felt really, really lonely in Montana at first. I felt like it was a very kind of indifferent landscape. And I'd grown up in like the rolling Appalachian Hills in Southwest Virginia, which are just this like warm deciduous hug. And then you get to Montana and you just feel like the landscape wants to eat you. (laughs) Um, And so I felt just sort of like lonely and kind of out on the edge. And I read the book again and realized how much anti sort of hero sentiment there is in it too. And just all the things that it, it challenges and all the questions that it calls up. And, and I was starting to think about those things and trying to understand what it meant to live in the West and to sort of like investigate or maybe challenge some of the myths of the West and the myths, myths of the frontier. And, you know, also read it again and just thought about how very kind of male centric it is. And I was like, what's that great used bookstore in Missoula? I can't think of Fact it. Fact and fiction? No, the, the, the other one. That's, oh, Bird's Nest? Yes. It was in Bird's Nest. I found this beautiful, I don't think it's, a, it was not a first edition, but it's a really old Letters of the Lewis and Clark expedition, like oh, yeah. right when I first moved mm-hmm. here and I bought it, couldn't afford to do, but I did. And I was like, just sort of pouring through it. And I was like, there, this is probably obvious and shouldn't be a surprise but there's no women any you know there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters in that book and all of them are are penned by men and so I just I don't know I was 
just starting to think about this idea of the West and who I was in the West. And as I was rereading some of the stuff and thinking about these guys, I started to identify with this idea of Julia Hancock, who is this young woman from Virginia who gets kind of scooped up by Clark and moved to the like frontier. She's something. like 13 when they meet. And then I think when he gets back from the expedition, she's like 16 and he's, I don't know, 36 or something. Hmm. Um, that was so much more accepted back yeah, then. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. bet the age of consent is still 16 in Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question, Aaron. <laughs> uh, yeah, that wouldn't shock me. Um, um, but it is interesting that the you know the only woman on the trip really is the true hero of the whole thing. Exactly, I know, yeah. I know. And I think Ambrose does, like, a couple of times he does a really nice job of acknowledging that. Um, yeah, there's, there's one part in there where he talks about her... But also the woman Nespurse. Nespurse, yes, the Nespurse woman who had spent some time with some fur trappers when mm-hmm. she was younger, and they had treated her really well. So she was like, "They were going to kill. <laughs> they were going to kill the expedition." And she said, "No." So mm-hmm. she back, basically saved their lives. And, yeah, yeah, and the Nespurse in general having sort yeah. of all these opportunities to, to like, right. you know, Don't. yeah. <laughs> Like there's that incredible scene or that section where the guys have all like come out of the Bitterroots and they've just been eating horse meat, right? Yeah, and yeah. like the Nespers find them and are like, here's some nice dried fish and roots. Ooh. And they all just like get the terrible shits and are right. incapacitated <laughs> for like two weeks and just right. on their asses. And Ambrose is like, this would have been this perfect opportunity for the Nespers yeah. to just overwhelm them and have this incredible arsenal yep. of guns, like not seen west of the Rockies and they didn't right? right. You know, they take pity on these guys and then I think he says that when then Chief Joseph and his band are forcibly removed by the army that there were people in that band who were old who had been young and oh, known man. Lewis and Clark when they came through oh. which is just that's another thing that blows me away about this book is how quickly right you know <laughs> how quickly we've kind of filled in this narrative and how not long ago some of these things were yeah yeah how long have you been in Montana, uh, lived in Montana? Um, well, the first time I came to Montana, I was 16 years old. And then I decided that I would go to college in Missoula and uh, follow, basically follow the men that I fell in love with, John Tubbs. Yeah, so I always say I, was, I came here as a young teenager and told my parents that this was where I was going to have their grandchildren and live the rest of my life. And they thought I was crazy. <laughs> That's a pretty great story. Will you will you tell that story about how you fell in love at first sight and all that? Well, my husband's family had become the managers at the Gates of the Mountains, which is a prominent spot on the Lewis and Clark Trail. In fact, Lewis named that spot. And we were going there as part of our following the trail in the summer of 1976. And we stopped in there. We kind of, we, on the side of our truck, it said Lewis and Clark expedition, 1976. And we just pulled in and launched our canoes and, and kind of avoided all the signs that said, yeah, you're supposed to pay your launch fee and all that stuff. (laughs) So my father-in-law, Bob Tubbs, who was the manager, was talking to my dad and said, what, you know, basically, what kind of job do you do that you can go off and traipse around the country all summer with your family? And he said, well, I'm a college history professor. And they struck up a great friendship. Mm. And um, I saw on the gas dock, uh, the youngest son of Bob and Florence Tubbs, who I immediately fell in love with. It was love at first sight. I, you know, I never expected that to happen to me, but it did. I'm not saying it happened to him. It wasn't like a, 
but it happened to me. And, you know, it's such a beautiful spot. If you haven't visited the gates of the mountains, it is a lovely spot and really, truly romantic in many ways. But who knew that I would fall in love with the gas boy there that day? <laughs> but I did. That's a good place to fall in love. Oh, yeah. No. Could you tell us about how you came to write Sacagawea Deserves the Day Off? Yeah, it came out after the book that we did on the encyclopedic um, Lewis and Clark companion. And I just felt like I had more to say about the various members of the expedition, especially her. And, you know, there were, I was getting to opportunities to speak along the trail throughout the bicentennial years. And so I really needed more than just the material of the entries for the encyclopedia. So I started writing these essays and actually was at the book festival in Missoula. A publisher was there and I said, do you take manuscripts? And he said, oh yeah, we take them. And he said, send it to me when you're done. And I said, I've got it right here. <laughs> and I gave it to him and they, they liked it. So it was really a, it was kind of a crazy story how I just, I just, you know, felt like this is worthy. It's something beyond just the facts. It's my opinion about what was going on during the years of the expedition and after and what her spirit would have been like if you could, you know, get more of a handle on it than what we actually have on her life. It is interesting how she's just a total mystery after the. Yeah. I think a lot of it is that so many groups and, and, interested individuals and people all want to put their, their claim, their brand on her. Right. And, and it's really, she's one of these people. I think that she defies that branding just because of her wealth of experience and everything that she did. You know, I see her more in when someone asked her, well, what tribe do you belong to? She'd probably say, well, I belong to the tribes of the Northern Plains because she had experiences with many of them. So mm -hmm. You know, it's it's a very interesting story. And I know there's a woman right now who's trying to um, raise money to make a movie of her life. So that would be interesting to see. Mm. So I love the fact that you focus on Julia. Um, and it, I, it's so cool that you grew up in the same place. So what else was it about her story that made you want to write from her point of view? I mean, I think I wanted, like, I felt a kinship with her. Mm. You know, I sort of felt we had this story where we'd, we'd grown up in this similar place we had kind of moved west to a landscape that we didn't know for, I mean, for me, it was love. I, I don't know how Julia felt about Clark, right? And I, right. I sort of tried not to really come down on that in the book. You know, I just sort of try to like think through her a little bit, but not necessarily put opinions mm. um, or values in her mouth. You know, she, I doubt, I doubt she had any real choice about whether she got to marry Clark, maybe, and maybe that became... There's no uh, record of her writing or nope. anything she... I, if there are letters from her, they're like with her family. They're not in any library that I could find. Mm. They're not in, you know, I've I've got a collection that I use to write this of letters between Clark and his brother. And he mentions her some and he'll occasionally sort of like refer to something that she wants or, you know, there's, there's things that you can learn about her, like him bringing her this piano to St. Louis, mm. like bringing a piano down the river for her. And that it would have been probably the first grand, I think in St. Louis. Um, so there's a little stuff like that, but I could not find anything that she'd actually written. Mm. So yeah, she was just this kind of empty voice and like she, mm -hmm. I identified with her experience of sort of coming out to, you know, St. Louis is not, 
a wilderness now, but at the time for her, that would have been sort of the edge of settled American territory and it would have felt very wild. And, you know, I got out here to Montana and I kind of felt like it was very wild and I was really far from home and this kind of alien and different place. And, and I think Montana is still, you can just kind of see the collision of, you know, civilization, I guess, with with wildness here in a mm-hmm. way that I think you can't anywhere else or in very few other places. And so I, I've always been interested in persona poems. I think they're really fascinating and powerful if, if they're done well and, and thoughtfully. And so I just kind of started trying on this voice mm-hmm. and just thinking about Lewis and Clark and thinking about the West and thinking about this landscape I'd moved to here in Helena. And I really, I really liked it. And I felt like it was fun and it was helping me think about, you know, ideas about progress and the West and technology, which is kind of a big theme for me when I was working on these poems. And then it, you know, I wrote enough where I was like, oh, I, I really like this. Like, mm. this is fun. And I feel like I see an arc uh, for a broader manuscript. And so I started doing more research and trying to read about her and read about the expedition more and see how that could weave into or speak with the other poems that I was working yeah. on that are more in my voice and more modern. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that they... They end up having a, a conversation that I felt happy with and that I think the, the themes kind of talk to each other well. The River Where You Forgot My Name, St. Louis, 1810. I thank Providence for directing the whale to us and think him much more kind to us than he was to Jonah, having sent this monster to be swallowed by us instead of swallowing of us as Jonah's did. William Clark, January 10, 1805, journal entry. The curved breast of the carcass like a ship, its great beaked head beached. You arrived too late for harvesting much, a bit of blubber to season with salt, boiled on the cragged, fog-shucked shore, and a splash of oil, lighting a few wet nights. Into the darkness where the beast was born flows the river where you forgot my name. Gifting it to the girl only a father ever summoned as Judith. Forgivable like most sins of omission for a man who knew only the obedient child, the one trying now to swallow the vastness of it. Memories, cold sinew, western sky, whale, the will of a lord who strands what he made. Wow, that's really nice. So, you know, you said you're you tried not to get into her head as far as like the judgment that she might have had, but it's hinted. Yeah, no, it, it's true. I <laughs> yeah. mean, and it wouldn't. I don't, and I, th- I love that about it, actually. Yeah, yeah, like I don't. I don't know. I feel like when you when you talk about Lewis and Clark, when you talk about Jefferson, right? Like I think we're kind of changing the conversation we're having about historical figures like that. But also, I think that you don't want to just like shove your modern values onto people right. in the past, right? Exactly. You know, like I didn't want Julia to just be like, oh, well, like I'm super woke and like I'm going to judge my husband because he was terrible to York and like yeah. I'm going to have really progressive views about Native Americans, you know, like that. That wouldn't be interesting or authentic, I right. think. But I, but you're right. Like, I think especially there's that sort of science lesson poem where she's like looking at the moon and she's just kind of learned that like the moon is controlled by the gravity of the earth and that there's this sort of like you know beautiful kind of classic symbol of of the the female that has no agency or kind of like self-power um and she's just like looking at it through the window and thinking about that and like 
you know, basically she's thinking, shit, the patriarchy. <laughs> but, you know, like it's a little quieter than that in the poem, I think. You know, one of my favorite parts of your book, speaking of being on the water, is the, I think the chapter's called Paddling Through Bodmer. Yes. Just because that's one of the few stretches of the Missouri I've also canoed, and I, I knew exactly what you meant when you described it, like, you know, going through there and like, oh my God, this is just what he painted. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that the one where you and your sister got lost for us? No, no, that was actually okay. in the gates. Um, okay. But, you know, we, we, John and I do the uh, breaks trip every summer with an outfit group. And, you know, we're kind of the talking heads of the group. And I always, you know, tell people, I read that chapter a lot mm. around the campfire. And yeah. I tell people, you know, the trip has never, ever been boring and it's never been the same trip because of the weather and the people you're with and all the different factors that come into a river trip. But it's also a good point to tell people that, you know, this is your birthright as a Montana to get on this stretch of river. It's a national monument for a reason. And people come here from all over the world. One day we were going right by the eye or the hole in the wall and there was a canoe pulled over and it had an Australian flag on it. And this guy had a copy of Undaunted Courage in the front of the boat. And I just was like, this is too much. You know, That's this awesome. is. Yeah, but it's a beautiful stretch. And no matter what, you know, get on it if you can and bring your friends because you'll have a wonderful time. <laughs> so one thing I wanted to ask, I uh, recently watched the Ken Burns, Lewis and Clark series again. Uh -huh. And then I was reading your that magazine you sent and I read Dayton's piece. And I was shocked to find out that Undaunted Courage wasn't even out yet when Burns did that Lewis and Clark series. Your yeah. dad had just finished writing it. Yeah. So it's it's fascinating to see. And probably that's probably why he was so good in that series, too. Like he was on fire for the whole subject matter. But yeah, he really was. He really was. <laughs> so this do you think this was his his most passionate book, the one that he had the most invested in emotionally and you know, I my mother and I would always say that our favorite book that he wrote was called Crazy Horse and Custer, just mm. because uh, it's it's more lyrical, I guess I would say. But he in terms of the person he identified with, I think it must have been Lewis over all the other people that he's written about. It was Meriwether Lewis. And, uh, you know, they, they would name their house in New Orleans or in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, which was right on the Gulf Coast. They named it Meriwether and nobody oh, wow. around there knew what that meant. You know what? They were just like, oh, Meriwether. But my parents, that's how much they, you know, loved Lewis. Hmm. So. Well, I was just going to say, I love the story where your dad was asleep by Lewis's gravestone in his truck. Yeah. <laughs> and the cop came and. <laughs> yeah, I was I actually just talked to our friend, an old friend who was with him on that trip. And he said, I've written up my own version of that. I'm going to send it to you. And I said, because yeah, I, I want to hear that. Yeah, they had a ball, though. Mm. But it was part of his getting into the. He really wanted to go there and see the, the site, the walk the ground around there. And I having been there myself, you know, they do a pretty good job at the interpretation there. There's an old cabin restored. And, you know, the Natchez Trace is a beautiful section of the country, too. So if you get a chance to go see his grave, it's a worth worth visit, you know. Winter Montana Lewis's list and it also has an epigraph. If it's very important, it's very short. 
If it's not important, it's very long. That's a rule in almost all texts. It's from Karl of Nosgaard. Lewis's list of expedition supplies goes on for pages. They begin with two Hadley's quadrants for finding the height of sun or star above horizon and end with eight nests of camp kettles. Brass is much preferred to iron. I like to think of him like this, his desk in the swamp of DC, capital roof half constructed, horseflies clobbering the rafters, while he sought to imagine a Western winter and all the tools and trinkets that would get him through it. Though he could not, of course, get his brain around such a thing, while hunkered in the rolling bowl of the Appalachians, bellied soft and low by the centuries. In his company came the first fiddle to sing in the Rockies, wood shrunk tight as a fish's scale coat, spurring dancing while the temperature lurked at 40 below. A cheap portable microscope, he listed, as if Secretary Dearborn might pick one up on his next trip to the district Walmart. Crayons, 500 best flints, 15 woolen overalls, 30 shirts of strong linen. The lakes are freezing, trees spearing the snow with their shadows, and lurking in my brain is that lurch across the continent, first wave of death for those who needed no sextant or chronometer. Two vials of phosphorus, 24 iron spoons, one seagrass hammock, six kegs of five gallons each for making 30 gallons of rectified spirits, such as is used for the Indian trade. Yet he loved those days beyond adventure, beyond compass needle and parallax, never knowing himself better than when he took a blade to a frostbitten toe by starlight. One iron frame canoe 40 feet long, that sucker sank. 12 ounces opium, and the absurd instrument for measuring made of tape with feet and inches marked on it, confined within a circular leathern box of sufficient thickness to admit the width of the tape, which has one of its ends confined to an axis of metal passing through the center of the box, around which and within the box it is readily wound by means of a small crank on the outer side of the box, which forms a part of the axis. The tape, when necessary, is drawn out with the same facility and ease with which it is wound up which is quite a way to say, don't forget the measuring tape, because I guess no one had bothered to name the fucking thing yet, but he was sure of its necessity. The mandate seemed so simple, after all. The goal direct, pass into wildness, measure, and make a count. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I mean, like, what? Why is there not a name for that thing? Like, this is, like, massive description of a measuring tape. I just, something that the undaunted courage always reminds me of too is just like how fluid language still mm. kind of was you know just oh like, even like spelling right like what clark spells mosquito like 20 different ways and, and never they never they, spell sacagawea yeah Chicago way. i mean that's part of the reason they don't really name right right and one of the best things that i think came out of the the commemoration was the Sierra Club went back to all those lists of critters and plants and everything and compared what we have now to what we had when Lewis and Clark came out. And that's, you know, that's a yardstick. That's a real significant thing for us in terms of our history of our country that we have this record. 
this survey, you know? And so that's, I think that's the part I like to remind people, you know, this wasn't a happy go lucky camping family camping trip. They had a job to do and they had to get it done in a certain amount of time because they knew other people were going to be coming soon too, other countries and interested parties. So. Yeah. Plus they would die. Yeah. <laughs> they wanted to get back to the creature comforts, you right. know? Well, anything else you want to mention, Steph? Um, I would just like to give pitch to all the people, you know, this with this COVID over the last two and a half years now. I guess you could call it a mixed blessing, but I look at it as a real blessing. And that is that, you know, we spent a lot of time, if you're a trail advocate, saying, you know, bring your kids out, get the kids out, go hiking, take them on a canoe trip. And this summer, and probably last summer too, I mean, it really, it just woke me up to how many people still have that idea that, yeah, going out into the woods with your family is a fun thing. It's not a chore. It's not, you know, an endurance thing or trial or anything. It's actually fun and your kids like it and they learn stuff from it. And I think, you know, that's our challenge as Montanans is to find a balance uh, between loving it and loving it to death. Mm, you know, right. Some of our rivers. And, uh, you know, I feel like that's the message that my dad would like, you know, to be conveyed with this anniversary of Undaunted Courage is that, you know, these kids grow up so fast and we'd need that next generation to be advocates and, you know, stewards. So how do you see the relationship between uh, your job now at American Prairie Reserve and your, and your work? Oh, my. Um, well, for one, a girl's got to eat. <laughs> No, but I, I mean, I've had, I've had an interesting Montana experience. I, mean, I moved out here in 2013, just following the sky. And I taught at Carroll and Helena College for a while. And I worked for another little nonprofit here in Helena called Arrow. Um, and I did that for like six years. And then I just sort of got a wild hair and I, you know, I studied poetry. I studied archaeology, but I just have come to a point in my life where I feel like some sort of work to heal the wounds of the land is like, oh, that sounds so cheesy, but like, that's really, that's really important to me. Um, and so I went and I worked in Yellowstone for a little while as an educator and was a guide in, in the park. And then in 2020, I had the Marjorie Davis Boyden Penn Northwest Wilderness Writing Residency, which is such a mouthful, but which was I spent seven and a half months in this little off-grid cabin on the Rogue River right. in southwestern Oregon with no Wi-Fi, no cell oh, service, like in this amazing little tiny off-grid cabin that had like, you know, propane wall lamps and a propane fridge and stove and like a solar water panel and hmm. it was just two hours from anything. And I, yeah, I, it's a residency that goes to one writer every year. I got it. I got it during the pandemic, which was just like the probably the luckiest thing that's ever happened to me yeah and I just like walked around in that old growth forest in Oregon every day in the rain and the sun and I swam in the river and I left and kind of just came out in this like I don't know kind of a state of gratitude and I was just like I need I need to do something that's like Mm. helpful for the planet and I just I hate saying it that way and I haven't figured out a better way to say it that doesn't sound sort of self-important but I just I don't know. And I, in Montana and then in Yellowstone, just thinking about the history of, 
of the Great Plains, of people in the Great Plains, of the buffalo, you know, and that's in Undaunted Courage too. Like mm-hmm. just those sections where they're like, oh my God, like you can't even see a piece of land that doesn't have a buffalo on it. And like the wolves just walk up to us. And it's just this like incredible like abundance of wildlife on the plains and in the, in the prairie of central Montana. Um, and so I have followed the work that American Prairie does for a long time. And I just think that, that that is an incredible project. And I think that large scale ecosystem conservation is just so important. Um, Buffalo commons. No. <laughs> I've been, a, I've been an advocate of that for 20 years. It's And they, you know, they're coming back in really interesting ways. There's so much going on with the tribes right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that Fort Peck and Fort Belknap have just sent letters to Martha Williams, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, about government-to-government consultation around bison on the Charlie Russell Wildlife Refuge. You know, all, all the tribes in Montana with reservation lands now have a bison herd or two that they manage. Um and it's really cool. It's just a really cool time to think about what what we can do mm-hmm. with the land and um, ways that we can, you know, not not go back to this. Like I don't yeah. think that that's the that's not what we're up to. But you know, I think there are ways to to heal and to so um, to bring it yeah. back to Butte. Also, you know, undoing the damage, like the the whole way they're cleaning the water and they've really mm-hmm. done the what is it silverboat creek mm-hmm. i mean it's an active fishery now yeah which is incredible <laughs> i know and this is all what, like 200 years after yeah. lewis and clark came through that like we could we could change that much we could destroy that much and then that we could you know start to turn things around or have conversations about turning things around and being a little more wise and Right. I mean, yeah. instead of putting cars into space and right, <laughs> yeah. which doesn't really help Put anybody. Back on the prairie. <laughs> we we need to thank. Um, we just did a fundraiser for this podcast two months ago, and we were very pleasantly surprised to raise on nine thousand dollars. And we want to thank everyone who contributed to that. We're really grateful, and that'll keep us going for a while now. Absolutely, and and also the Isle of Books in Bozeman and now in Butte as well, they serve as our sponsor too, so we want to thank them. So this episode, we discussed The River Where You Forgot My Name by Corey Williamson. And we also looked at Undaunted Courage by Stephen Ambrose and Sacagawea Deserves the Day Off by his daughter Stephanie Ambrose Tubbs. She also wrote with Clay Jenkinson, The Lewis and Clark Companion, an encyclopedic guide to the voyage of discovery, chronicling little-known aspects of the journey, as well as the entire cast of characters and most of the beloved campsites. Thank you so much for joining us here on Breakfast in Montana, and we'll be putting together another episode soon. We'll see you next time.